we allow the heart, the wisdom, and the kindness to do some caretaking. So we're checking in around safety as if we were saying to ourselves, how are you doing? How are you feeling? And we're checking in because we actually care about this life. And we may or may not be able to do anything to address, like if there is some feelings of not being safe or anxiety. But we do know from our own experience that it really matters what the mind pays attention to. So it's often useful strategically useful to know how to pay attention to what's wholesome and what's beautiful. And it can be very simple, like taking a few moments to contemplate the wholesomeness of the community we're part of right now, sitting in this room together, Sensing how the community here values being calm, values being present, values being kind. We can pay attention to the generosity that made this place, Holy Wisdom Retreat Center and the Insight Meditation Community in Madison. Like all the causes, the wholesome causes and conditions that we get to be supported by right now. It's not that it's perfect, but it is a simple beauty. The land here, all the wholesome intentions that allowed this retreat to come together. And the goodness of my own intentions that got me to sign up and got me to show up. And by paying attention to these wholesome aspects that are right here in the moment, the heart might begin to feel a little bit more safe, like it belongs here. I belong in my life, belonging, I belong in this moment, in this place, this time and place. We can trust the body. Again, it's not perfect, this body, but... We can appreciate the partnership, this body and mind, being together, learning how to mutually support, use this life for insight, for learning, greater freedom, 
and for contributing <coughs> to the well-being of others in beautiful ways. We can take refuge in that wholesomeness. That's right here too. And finally, as a cause for more safety, we can appreciate this heart's capacity for love, not in any idealistic sense, just in a very grounded, real sense, this capacity to connect, and actually this capacity for the heart to break or to be tenderized by life, by all that's in motion, all the beauty, but also all the difficulty and real suffering, real injustice that also is in motion, maybe in my life, but certainly around my life, all of which we allow in. And this is the love's capacity to include to be touched by life and all of its beauty and horror. Not afraid to be right in the middle. So this kind of reflection can be useful at the beginning of a retreat day or beginning of a set or any time during the day, on retreat or off retreat, where we're taking responsibility for safety for doing the best we can to support safety. And it will never be perfect. It just needs to be good enough safety where the heart can relax a little, where the heart can actually be interested in connecting and seeing clearly So it's the basic safety, having enough safety that allows the heart to practice. And often, folks in the early Buddhist tradition, we practice with our experience of embodiment. Working with the breath or in a more full way, working with the whole body where we're practicing relaxing and being clearly aware with the experience of the breath and the body. It's a training ground, developing more and more ease, trust, relaxation, and developing more and more clarity, interest, humility, sensitivity. Breathing in, sensitive to the whole body, just as it is. And while breathing out, opening, receiving, sensitive to the whole body, just as it is. Remember, you can also be interested 
in the underlying feeling at any point. You can even drop in the question, well, what's the underlying feeling here? What's the feeling here? Oh, feels like this right now. Well, can this feeling be okay to feel? Breathing in, feeling the feeling that's here. Breathing out, opening to all the feeling, the underlying feeling that's here. So much of the mental proliferation and reactivity arises because the underlying feeling isn't being acknowledged, isn't being open to, received. And of course, at times, that underlying feeling is going to be very unpleasant. It might be subtle, but it can still be very unpleasant, very difficult to really relax with and trust. And that's why we call it a practice. We're learning to try again, to open and relax and to be actually interested, allowing the feeling to express itself. So the interest isn't about controlling anything. It's really an interest in that experience, this moment's experience, to reveal or express itself, get as big or intense as it wants to get, or as subtle and sublime as it wants to get. More and more becoming this relaxed and open and clear space of awareness where things come and go, demonstrating their changing and impersonal nature. So we'll continue in silence for a while.
very easy for the mind to keep coming back to the world of thought. And of course the thoughts might be about the body, about the breath, about the practice. So it may seem superficially like the mind is doing what it's supposed to be doing. And that can help to go beyond this very deep habit to be basically lost in thought, is to cultivate an interest and a valuing of embodiment itself. This experience of embodiment is always here and now, always present. And it's not conceptual. It's what we could say actual, call it actual. The feeling, the sensations of the body sitting, the breath moving, the movement of pain and discomfort, the movement of pleasure, lightness in the body. Cultivating relaxation and interest as you breathe in, feeling the body. Trusting this capacity to relax, this capacity to be interested as you exhale, connecting, opening to the whole body, just as it is. And of course, other phenomena will come and go. And when those experiences are quite strong, then let them be the object of meditation for a moment or for moments. But come back to this training ground of whole body awareness, this embodied, visceral sense here and now.
We have some time for questions now. And as you probably know, we having some of you will be having small groups today during the walking periods. Group two is at 9.40, and group three is at 10.50, and then group four will be meeting at 3.05, I believe. Yeah. I'm really, really enjoying this whole exploration of safety. And um, so I'm noticing that when I'm safe, I can be the problem I grow And when I'm not feeling safe, either there's a thought that's uncomfortable or something in my body that's just uncomfortable. So um, what my question is really can you connect feeling space with feeling connected to other people um, in terms of, you know, we're part of this organization that we're asking the same thing And of course, it cuts both ways, community, right? Because um, there is a lot of safety that that arises in being together when it's wholesome and harmonious, and then when it's divisive, right? Then the other half of the equation comes out, which is we really hurt because we've allowed ourselves to feel connected and to feel supported by the community, then we're also, in a sense, vulnerable to the disharmonies in the community too, because it threatens our ground. So this is part of that territory. We can, as human beings, be healthy and ignore the primal need for safety, right? But as wiser, let's call it, spiritual beings, we begin to realize we're never going to be perfectly safe, safe, you know, because it just doesn't happen in this embodied existence with birth and death, with all the uncertainty, with how power moves just in our, you know, communities. And, uh, yeah, it's, uh, we're beasts. I mean, part of our programming, programming at least is very beastly. And, that's not going to go away. But we can, you know, do our best. And like I said, a lot of it has to do with, you know, when we're um, interested in doing some spiritual work, of course you can do this, we should do this in a way all day long, but especially at these times when we want to look in a deeper way or open in a deeper way, then it really matters what we pay attention to initially and whether when paying attention to what I'm paying attention to, like community, like the wholesomeness of the community, whether that then creates or supports the arising of safety. Or if there are some little torments or big torments in my heart, stories or images that are very you know, provocative of stress and anxiety, then instead of just looking at that wound, that pain, 
I can look at the quality in my heart that cares about that pain or that exposure. Oh yeah, this is overwhelming. This feels like too much. And I really care about that. Is there a way I can hold this? So we're paying attention to the compassionate response to the stress instead of the stress itself. It sounds subtle, but it really is impactful. Are we noticing that I care about this overwhelming stuff in my life? Or am I just looking at the overwhelming stuff? Each time I look, I get triggered. I feel more anxious. And then I look again, and then it triggers the anxiety. And it's this vicious feedback loop where we keep paying attention to what triggers anxiety, let's say. And the anxiety triggers the mind to want to look at what's so scary. Oh yeah, that. And then the then the wave of anxiety again and back and forth. And we get trapped in that vortex. And we're really not good for anybody. Like you said, you know, we can't show up for anybody else. We're not available because we're in that vicious vortex. So one way we can break it is like if there's just enough space, wisdom in the mind, we'll see that vortex. We'll see the lawfulness of that. Like when you look at this, you get this. And when you're feeling that anxiety, you want to look at what the monster is. You know, but now we have some space around it. And in that space, the question will arise, well, what else can I pay attention to that won't be that? You know, that won't feed that feedback. So we, the one step that's not that far away is just to realize it's not easy being a human being. Now I'm paying attention to something different, although still related to the anxiety, right? But now I'm realizing it's a whole different frame. Like, I realize it's not easy being a human being and I care about that. Or it might be even a more radical turning, like taking a walk and noticing the sky or noticing the feet on the earth or making dinner, you know, and chopping vegetables or cleaning. I mean, these are tried and true mechanisms for shifting the various, you know, shifting out of a storm, an emotional storm, by service, basically, or um, some generous act. It could be towards yourself or yourself or toward another. But it really works. You know, sometimes when people are uh, overwhelmed on retreat, I teach a lot of residential retreats, and, you know, we might say, well, let's go talk to the kitchen manager. There's probably work to do. You know, and they're in that social, that little social, wholesome social network of two or three people in the kitchen, very often very harmonious, doing work that they actually see the benefit of, like the floor looks clean now that I've swept it, or the dishes are put away. And compared to that sort of vortex of feeding anxiety, anxiety feeding the obsessive looking, and on and on like that, we feel, it's, it's not perfect, but we feel more safe, right? Like, maybe life is actually workable. At least this little corner in life seems workable. And we start building a sense of safety all over again. So absolutely, you know, to your point, community is a big piece. But we, do, we really want to uh, notice when we go from sort of pragmatically taking care of the fear and unsettledness and finding some safety to slipping into an idealistic 
this is really going to take care of me because it won't. I mean, imagine if all in all of the marriage ceremonies, you know, you'd everyone getting married would hire kind of a wise Buddhist student to be there, you know, and they'd have their three minute, you know, during the vows, you know, people would do the vows and then the wise Buddhist student would say, maybe not so. <laughs> or maybe not forever. Or even something simple like, who knows? <laughs> who knows? Because that's actually true. Right? So even like these uh, situations where we're investing a lot, we really think this relationship is going to be something special, healing, forever. But that's just not the case, right? Because things change. And, and we all have our unfinished business, and so it expresses itself in all of our communities, whether it's our marriages or whatever community we're part of. Yeah, thanks for bringing that up. Yeah. I guess the question in my mind came up, how do you live in community, have relationships, without attachment to the community, without relationships? Yeah. And this will naturally come out of uh, a long-term interest in suffering, the, the answer to your question or your comments. Um, because we have to, uh, you know, just because we care about our life and we care about suffering, we start to pay attention. And we really see that wherever there's suffering, there's attachment. And so then that gets us interested. We don't know where we're going with this practice, right? And that's important to say. I mean, some of you know the word nibbana or nirvana. It just means something ceasing. It isn't like a place, like heaven, that we're going to end up at if we're a really good practitioner. It just means we have some sense of what needs to be abandoned, right? That's a little bit easier in our current situation when we have some space of wisdom, some stability. We can really see the toxic effect of attachment. Right? Like we could be sitting, feeling a lot of ease, a lot of space, and then a memory or something comes to mind where there's some attachment. I mean, this happened to me many times where uh, Julie mentioned that Common Ground is developing a retreat property near Prairie Farm, Wisconsin, a little bit north of Menominee. And, uh, and you know, there's just like, we're right in the middle of the renovation and there are all these unknown questions, including like, can we afford it? Afford all the things we're, we've set in motion already, right? And so all these sort of unresolved things, they just pop in my mind. And then right when that little problem pops in my mind is the attachment to having a resolution, you know, an elegant resolution to that problem that we're actually, you know, that we can actually do. Or, and, and an aversion to it being unknown and unresolved. And I can see the toxic effect. Like, I can go from my body feeling pretty open and my mind feeling pretty calm and clear to 
physically entangled and emotionally, mentally entangled. And it's like no time. It's just like a switch flips. And I'm right, because I've been in that little vortex before, so it's all set, you know. (laughs) And I just, the mind, in a sense, just falls in it or becomes it. And that's suffering. So the question of what is what is uh, being in the world, what is being in relationship, being engaged without attachment. And the, the thing is, we find that out by seeing more and more clear, clearly that attachment isn't helping. So the emphasis in the, the, Buddhist, uh, the Buddhist teachings is really understanding the cessation of attachment, the cessation of craving, the cessation of grasping, the cessation of struggling. Really get interested in that. And then we, that's where we discover the mind or the heart as it's operating in the world, but now without attachment for moments. Because the clarity we have is that attachment, I mean, often we don't have this clarity. Usually we think attachment is justified and necessary. But the more we practice, the real big insights this attachment isn't helpful. This attachment should be abandoned. doesn't mean I can go out or go in there and get rid of the attachment, but I just see that it isn't helping. Just like when we're sitting and we see our mind spinning obsessively about something, we can have great clarity and compassion like this isn't helpful, this isn't helping, right? And if we hang in there long enough feeling what it feels like to be obsessive, not judging it, not afraid of it. But there, because we're not judging it and not afraid of it, we really see that it's not helping. And it's that seeing that it's not helpful that leads to, it, leads to the letting go. It's not a willful thing that you or I do. Because otherwise we would have let go of our neurotic stuff a long time ago. right? I mean, we all kind of know what our neurotic patterns are. Can you let go of them? I can't. But I've seen letting go happen, and it correlates, the letting go happen correlates with seeing that attachment, whatever the fixation is, whatever the entanglement is, to see that as dukkha or suffering. Oh yeah, this isn't helpful. And we just hang in there. That's why there's such a big place for patience. I'll talk more about this this afternoon. It's really the second and third noble truths which you're asking about. But it's kind of exciting to know that we don't know what it's like to live without attachment. But we're interested. And you know, that's what we call a saint. A saint is somebody who's completely engaged, completely showing up in their lives and all the things that are up for them in their life. But they don't have greed, anger, and delusion. They don't have any of the mechanisms of attachment. Right? So what would that be like? You know, how to raise kids without attachment, how to have a partner without attachment, how to care about social justice issues without attachment, or, you know, global warming issues without attachment. And, uh, you know, the one thing to explore is that when the mind is more dominated or full of love, right? Like love, another way of asking that same question, what's love without attachment? Or does love depend on attachment? 
And it's really like, is love always specific to a time and place or a person? Or is love not actually about things that might trigger love or remind us of our capacity to love? Because love is a motivating and enlivening force in our lives. Compassion, love, joy, right? So it can be the motivating force for doing what needs to be done. It doesn't have to be fear or attachment. We've just gotten in that habit. Thanks for the good question. Some, a few folks left some questions. Someone asked, uh, can you remind us what the meaning of safety is in this context? And I kind of addressed it in the previous comment. But remember, safety um, is never perfect. It's just caring about our existential situation, which is uneasy, right? I don't know anybody who isn't uneasy. There's some people who've done a lot of practice who are definitely less uneasy. But most of the human beings I know, maybe all of them, have some uneasiness. And then that uneasiness is masked in any moment to some degree. That's why you could ask a friend, do you feel safe? And they may say yes. But from your perspective, sensing your friend, you may sense all their anxiety or all their uneasiness, but that doesn't mean in that moment they're aware of it, right? And it's the same with us, our own uneasiness. I can be quite uneasy, but for minutes I'll be absorbed in something and I'll be unaware that I'm uneasy, but the uneasiness is there. So this practice that I'm suggesting to check in off and on during the day, off and on during retreats, you know, it's a very honest question. How am I doing? I don't want to be unaware of the uneasiness, the existential uneasiness. I want to kind of live with that more and more on the surface because it's going to drive the show anyway. I might as well have it illuminated so I'm aware of what's moving, what's being felt here. And that honest relationship with safety is just a healthier way to live our lives. Someone asked, do we set an intention for a retreat other than being present in the moment? Intention like clarity on a specific situation. Yeah, but but uh, <laughs> you know, one intention is like we should be really reflective about what intention is the deepest or wisest intention? Because we could come on retreat with the intention to impress everyone. You know? I mean, and you might, you know, if you really apply your heart to that intention, you might gain a few devotees by the end of the retreat. <laughs> but, you know, that kind of happiness isn't going to got to maintain those devotees and <laughs> or you know you come on retreat and your intention is to get to the end of it i mean that it's not necessarily bad intention but it's a limited intention one way we talk about intention or aspiration you know may i learn something may i see something about the heart that i haven't learned or seen before 
Because if we have that intention every day, 365 days a year, you know, 10 years in a decade, maybe we got 40 years of practice, 20 years of practice, or whatever it is, but we'll learn a thing or two. If we really intend, really resolve and follow through with that intention to learn something, or even more specifically, learn something about the causes for suffering and the causes for release. Right? So that's what the Buddha might say. Like, if you're going to have an intention, because whether we own it or not, that's really what we're interested in anyway. All human beings, we're interested in suffering and the end of suffering. Why the heck is life so painful? Why the heck is my heart so burdened? How did my heart get so light and free right now? How did that happen? Right? Because we're, we're always moving in the direction of more entanglement, more suffering, and then some alleviation, some lightening up, some freedom. It's always going up and down. But are we actually present enough to understand, to deepen our understanding of the underlying mechanisms? Like, I mean, you can use Buddhist language. It's not enough just to know it intellectually, but it's helpful. Like, oh yeah, when there's craving, when there's attachment, there's going to be suffering. When there's no craving or attachment, there's no suffering or less suffering. So we just, because that really helps us know what the issue is, like what to pay attention to, what's supporting suffering, what supports the release. Because then we know what to abandon and what to cultivate. And that's how the, you know, the Buddha summed up what he was teaching. You know, cultivate what's good, cultivate the supporting causes for release. That's called doing what's skillful. What is skillful is cultivating the supports, the mental qualities, the mental understanding that allows for the abandonment of attachment. Abandon what's not helpful, right? So do what's helpful. Stop doing what's not helpful. And here's, this is what really makes it distinct from other sort of spiritual approaches. Because anybody with some wisdom is going to say, stop doing the dumb stuff. <laughs> Start doing the good stuff, right? But the third thing is cultivate the mind. Cultivate the mind so it is this very beautiful, stable, and sensitive presence. Because then you'll really see what the good stuff and the not-so-good stuff are, right? It's that sensitivity, that profound sensitivity really helps. Because in a way, we're, we're, since day one, or maybe age three, somewhere around there, we've wanted to abandon, avoid suffering. We've wanted to cultivate freedom, you know. But our understanding was so superficial, we thought getting revenge on my younger brother would make me happy, you know. And it doesn't. Well, maybe <laughs> briefly, but <laughs> feeling a little bit of moments of control, right, by putting that little brother in his place. But then there's all the repercussions. And it's that superficiality that sort of keeps us in these cycles. And the Buddha talked about these cycles of suffering in ways that really break our heart open.
So we'll leave it here. Uh, group two, we're going to be meeting upstairs in just a minute or two. And for everyone else, there's walking practice now. Thanks everyone for your questions. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.